Welcome back to part two of this show today with David Serida, where we are basically explaining UAPs. Now, mind you, and explaining them doesn't mean that we are saying who they are or where they're from, <laughs> but at least we can glean some basics out of the quote-unquote technology, mm-hmm. um, or I, I would rather say the laws of nature that are involved, because, you know, some of these phenomena may be organic. Right. So we continue, obviously, with the UAP tread. I have a few more questions I want to ask you about that, so mm-hmm. I hope I, I, you're going to get through those. Uh, then we will, when we're done with that, we're going to slide over to your videos. I think it's better we take that in the middle because that's related to UAPs. But it's also related to what I thought we could talk about in the last part of the show, and that's mm-hmm. a crash course in, in sound vibration and stuff like that. So we could end it with your website and the stuff you're selling. Okay. Because that seems to be your passion the last years, right? Yeah, I mean, I, but they're both my passion. The anti gravity, like I, I gave a recent lecture on what's called magnetic lensing, which is how I think these UFOs are really working. Mm. And on my website, the staff, you'll see all the ancient iconographic deities in Egypt, also in the Bible. They all have their staff. And, gee, and I believe the staff is an antenna, it's a bio antenna that connects them to the to a literally i believe there are craft in the bible which we can see we can see the prophet ezekiel was taken up into the sky in a whirlwind holding his staff like the vimanas right so i think i can explain see everything's magnetic everything's either paramagnetic diamagnetic or ferromagnetic or anti-ferromagnetic. So you have four major categories of magnetism. And Hmm. when you really understand how it works, the idea of a UFO shaped like a lens, it's actually a a switchable paramagnetic and diamagnetic lens. So we could go into the propulsion theories I have in that, and then how the prophets and the enlightened beings using their staff were able to communicate with the gods through their own nervous system running because the height of an antenna is proportional to its frequency right Mm. so which i'll explain and then then eventually that ties you into frequency Mm. and sound and and that work which i believe was what the ancient used to move huge stones right we know we know there were stone-based technology but also sound-based technology yeah, but also when you understand what a paramagnetic lens is, and a, di- a paramagnetic will attract and a diamagnetic will push away. Mm. And then then you start researching the metals that are more paramagnetic and diamagnetic than the others. And silver is way up there. And in I have a whole chart on the, the different magnetic properties. Mm. Because with my coils, when... I use an aluminum base on my coil, so my copper is diamagnetic and the aluminum is paramagnetic. So when a magnetic field is on and they're pressed against each other, the aluminum turns into a magnet and it starts vibrating in the presence of the diamagnetic copper field. But those those vibrations start opening, if you lens it, they start opening up the way to 
lifting things and making things lighter and eventually anti-gravitic. Mm. And you can see in the in the UAP footage, this is what's happening. So that's an area I want to go into. In okay, the, great. Yeah. Uh, by the way, it sounds to me, have you ever seen, um, you know, the Rosicrucians, they have shots like this. They have shots where they are noting down the vibrations of everything and how it harmonizes. You know, it's either plus, minus or neutral, you know, the magnetic thing. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with those shots or have you just kind of... No, the, uh, I mean, I've read so much in my life, but but maybe you could explain that, the Rosicrucians, because it might tie into the three major types of magnetism. The antiferromagnetic is very rare, actually. There's not... I can show you... Let me, where's my chart here on all the magnetic properties from the periodic table? Let's see. Um, yeah, there is also this periodic table, which is spiral. Uh, now, the Rosicrucian has 144 elements, but if you take it like Walter Russell did in a spiral, you will see that they all fit. It's just different octaves. Right. So, so, so the different families of elements when they uh, arrange them in terms of quality in different places in the shot, it's really helpless because if you put it in a spiral, you will understand where the natural transition to a new type begins. You understand? There, right. there will be relations to someone who are on the left side, someone in the middle, someone on the right, but they will be on different octaves. I'm sure you're familiar with those shots, Walter Russell's. Uh, right. Uh, he has this um, periodic table, which is based on spiral. Okay. Here it is. Here's the periodic table. Okay. I found the periodic table for a magnetic type of element. So let me send this to you. Yeah, send it. Because you, you can compare that to the the Rosicrucian model. There's a, take a look at this, and you'll see. Like again, there's there's all what this table doesn't tell you is how high. Now look at that. See, silver is diamagnetic. So if you take a good piece of silver and a good neodymium magnet and move the neodymium magnet back and forth against the silver, you'll feel it. You'll feel the magnetism there on the silver. But if the magnet is not moving, you won't feel anything. Mm. Now, so, this, is, this is just a listing of them, but it's still useful info. I think what I'll do between you, me and the NSA, I'll send you some of those shots, they are sub rosa, so you can't publish them or anything, but maybe you can glean something out of them. Maybe they're useful to you. Yeah, they might be, yeah. So I'll send you that stuff later. Let's uh, take, I'm going to study this later too. So let's pick up where we stopped uh, in part one, David. And okay. there's two things. Um, there's one thing you said in part one, you just said it by passing. You talked about how the space shuttle have may have been sabotaged. Now, of course, this is something people have heard about before, but maybe you want to say a couple of things about that. But what really triggered my question then was, do you think Mm -hmm. that the Tether incident could have been a sabotage? Because it was, I mean, that leak on NASA TV has been one of the major blows, one of the great smoking guns in the modern history of UFO footage. Any thoughts? Oh, this is a huge subject. So I started... Getting after the Columbia incident, I was actually lecturing on NASA UFOs that day in in Sedona at the Creative Life Center, (laughs) and you could smell the the burning of the chemicals of the shuttle because it went right over us, actually. And 
So some some period later, I can actually check in my emails. I started getting this. The, this report came out about an amateur photographer. His name was Peter Goldie in San Francisco. He's a British tourist. And actually, he was a teacher. He's passed away now. And he was taking pictures of the shuttle. And it shows in the, in the early morning light. And he's using a tripod, a Nikon Coolpix camera, which doesn't have a motor drive. And he's manually shooting about one frame every second or so. And you mm-hmm. see this incoming object from above, and it's corkscrewing, and it seems to be chasing the Columbia, and it misses it and corkscrews and turns at 90 degrees. So the space shuttle is doing approximately 18,000 miles an hour. So for this thing to catch up to it, um, it is phenomenal how fast it's going, right? Mm. And, and then it does a 90-degree turn, chases the shuttle, and hits it. And then the shuttle comes apart. Mm. And this, th- these photographs were talked about by Russell Sabin in the San Francisco Chronicle. And Tammy Jernigan, who is who a, a, an earlier space shuttle astronaut, confiscates the guy's camera. And they take it to the Lawrence, um, the Lawrence Livermore lab. And they publish in the San Francisco Chronicle that the incoming is an artifact of Peter Goldie's camera. And, and I tried to get the the photos and somebody actually sent them to me and peter goldie was furious for some reason because he didn't want his photos out there somebody somebody got them to me and so all of a sudden i i i'm talking about this on it was either art bell or george norrie in those days i'm trying to remember who was which show i was on Mm -hmm. and i get this email from an mit alumni physicist and in the email list is, is Sheila Widnall, Secretary of the Air Force, Hanscom Air Force Base, NASA, NASA, NASA. All these people were not allowed to see the photographs that this, this guy took. Mm. And so I wrote up a report doing a, a speed analysis. By, it, it's a simple ratio calculation with the photograph. You know how fast the shuttle's going. And you just do a simple ratio mathematic and you see that this incoming is actually accelerating and eventually is approaching over 40,000 miles an hour when it hits the Columbia. And the first thing is that the, art, the, the, the debates started to try to explain away the phenomena as mega lightning. And the problem with mega lightning theories is, is one, lightning has tentacles. This thing has no tentacles. Mm. And second, the incoming not only is no technic, um, it, it's not going fast enough to be lightning because lightning, I think, is somewhere around a quarter million miles an hour. I mean, I I don't have that, those files in front of me right now, but I can I can get them to you. Can post them all the photographs. I have photographs, marked photographs, showing the um, the the incident. So what happens? Yeah, next? we put them in the video version of this uh, conversation. Yeah, do that. Send it to yeah, me. Yeah. Mm. It's going to blow your mind. So what happens is really phenomenal. This guy, through through the secretary of the Air Force, is sending me photographs taken by NASA's own cameras from the Johnson Space Center of the same incoming striking the Columbia. And these are NASA's photographs, which means 
which means Tammy Jernigan was lying. They they weren't taken out by a lightning strike. This is clearly not a lightning strike. It was not an artifact of the guy's camera because it was confirmed on NASA's cameras, right? Mm. And here, I found, because I posted this on Facebook a long time ago with the photograph, so I found, I'll be able to send you all the photos. Now, there's two sets of photos. There's the tourist Peter Goldie's photos, and then there's the photos taken by NASA's own cameras. Mm. So basically, the shuttle is doing 12,500 miles an hour. And the our, our fast the fastest of anything on Earth is is the ICBM Minuteman missile, which can do eighteen thousand miles an hour, and that's even that we know of. There is also that we, that, that we know of. Yeah. And remember, these UAPs using radar data are going a minimum of twenty three thousand miles an hour, and is high based on radar data as as 68,000 miles an hour. And then there's one incident where David Fravor said on the radar, the UAP jumped 60 miles in a second, which is 216,000 miles an hour. And then last time we talked about how fast a nuclear fusion drive would be, according to Earl Van Wenningham at NASA. And that was in the realm of 67 um, million miles an hour. So so basically, and the and the missions to the moon in, with the Saturn five Saturn five rockets were twenty four thousand miles an hour, but that's out in clean space. So mm. we have the shuttle doing twelve and a half thousand miles an hour, but in order for this thing to catch up to it in a matter of seconds, it's approaching it's approaching forty thousand miles an hour and even faster, possibly. I mean, it's interesting because you don't. You don't know how much time is between each shutter, each photograph Peter Goldie took, and you're going to see these. So I get this email, and these here, here's the people on it. I mean, Sheila Widnall, which is Secretary of the Air Force, uh, William Burke, Hanscom Air Force Base, Jim Smiley, NASA, Sheila uh, at MIT.edu. I don't know which Sheila that is. Um, uh, Elizabeth Fountain, NASA, um, NASA, lots of people at NASA on the email list. They want me to send them Peter Goldie's photos because Tammy Jernigan won't, who's the former astronaut. She locked them up at the, the Lawrence Livermore lab. So I wow. send the photos and a speed chart comparing all our fastest missiles. And this incoming is faster in order to hit the shuttle in such a short amount of time, but way too slow to be a lightning strike, right? Mm. It, it's So the whole theory of a mega lightning strike, if you go to columbiadisaster.info, they're trying to say it's it's a mega... Well, mega lightning doesn't look like this. It has tentacles. And lightning is nearly instantaneous and would probably not damage the shuttle that much, honestly. A lightning strike might create a burn mark or something like that, but it's... It's not going to take out the shuttle. So the public was lied to, and on ColumbiaDisaster.info, they only have one photo of Peter Goldie's, which shows there's no chase, where this thing course corrects at nearly just under 90 degrees. Now, you can't turn at 90 degrees at 25 to 45,000 no. miles an hour. But but did it come from above then, since they say it was lightning? It came from above. So oh, wow. then an investigation went in to... Um, and when you see the confirming photos from NASA's own cameras, it's coming from above. Mm. And it, it, it clearly hits the shuttle. And 
there are some very mysterious things about the photographs of the shuttle that were taken at the at the Johnson Space Center because all the photos are coded JSC and .nasa.gov in the photo. And these were sent to me by an MIT alumni. So I'm in the middle of this thing. Yep. The public doesn't know anything about it, but the, the the velocity of the incoming is is within the range of the first set of data we got from the UAPs dropping from above 80,000 feet to 20,000 feet in 0.78 seconds and other reports said it came right to the deck at sea level in 0.78 seconds and and that puts it in the realm of of nearly 70,000 miles an hour but the the report of it drop dropping from 80,000 feet to 20,000 feet in 0.78 seconds puts it around 25,000 miles an hour plus because when they say it's coming in from above 80,000 feet then you don't know how high above it came from that and that's so there, there's a lot of there's a lot of people throwing loose numbers out there I've seen a lot of interviews on TV even Joe Rogan throwing loose numbers out there and when, when you're talking about you know getting a performance chart on these UAPs and comparing it to our fighter jets which peak at about 2,500 miles an hour. And they, they rarely go that fast. They rarely break the sound barrier, actually, which is over 780 miles an hour at sea level. So you, you're looking at performance of, of an incoming missile. If this is a missile, and it, it's a munition, and it can turn at 90 degrees at that speed... And you can see from the photographs, it's clearly chasing the Columbia. I think we can rule out that it came from uh, any terrestrial, at least a white terrestrial source like yeah. Russia, China, stuff like that. Right. So then what happens next is that the there's a guy named, um, there's a guy in Dallas and he's, his name is George Mosman. And Mosman contacted me after I was talking about it on the radio and he's saying that he was in his lawyer's office that day in Texas, and he's looking through Zeiss binoculars up at the incident, and he sees two UFOs, that one of which was a purple color, which is the same color as the incoming streaking object on the Peter Goldie photographs, as well as the confirming NASA photographs. We see this violet mm. uh, incoming but what's amazing on one of the photos from NASA's cameras is we three three UFO objects ahead of the trajectory of the Columbia, which means they're not pieces of debris that came off Columbia because those would be behind it, mm. right? And and this confirms Mosman's optics saying that these were clear disc shape. Uh, one was gold and the other was purple, he said. Right, but but hang on, wouldn't the colors be able to tell us something about their vibrations? Exactly, like you know, when you look at okay, so how high is the shuttle? It's at uh, the altitude is. Let's see, I gotta find it here. The shuttle is is it? It's such a high altitude that let me just look at the speed. Of I'm just looking at my notes here that I'm mm -hmm. finding online. Yeah. I'm seeing it where I put those particular notes, and uh, yeah. So so anyway, 
this gets really interesting because NASA then commissions a study in Fort Collins, Colorado, because the 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 argument about super lightning is ruled out in this study. And I have a copy of the study. And the study says that one of the astronauts aboard the Columbia was stu- was doing experiments in the mesosphere. And the mesosphere is a region where apparently there is a lot of strange phenomena, which mm. starts at about 39 miles above the Earth. So the mesosphere is also called the ignorosphere, meaning that NASA seems to ignore this region. It's too low for <laughs> satellites. Right. Like, we don't have satellites at 39 miles. Oh, yeah. Right? I don't know about this theory about the, this this dark satellite, you know, this mysterious... Dark York. night. The dark night. I don't know its altitude, and it might be within the mesosphere range, right? Mm. But one thing we know is the the Columbia is in the lower mesosphere when this happens. The incoming seems to be coming from well within this mysterious mesosphere, ignorosphere, as it's called. So the there's no way. Okay, so lightning travels over two hundred seventy thousand miles per hour. So so remember, so lightning is too fast to explain the incoming because we see consecutive photographs from from Peter Goldie, which means it's way too slow to be lightning because we're not looking at something going 270,000 miles an hour, right? Mm-hmm. And, and two, I've actually, um, using video cameras, uh, videotaping lightning at, at 60 frames, 30 frames a second on video, I don't see it in more than two frames ever. Wow. So that would be a 15th of a second, right? Yeah, yeah. So that means that if, if Peter Goldie was using a manual shutter for a fraction of a second to take these pictures of Columbia on a tripod, then there's no way he's going to get a lightning strike. You can't sit there with your camera, push the shutter, and get a lightning sh- strike. The, the, the odds are against you, mm. millions of to one. But if you leave your lens open on a tripod, you might get some lightning strikes, right? Mm -hmm. But with video, it's different. I'm filming continuous video, and then when I replay the video, if I captured a lightning strike, it's not on more than two frames, which means the lightning can't exist for more than a 15th of a second. So Mm -hmm. here's the funny part about the thing being called mega lightning is that Peter Goldie got five pictures of the same lightning strike. How do you get five pictures mm. of the same lightning strike? That's impossible. Mm. It's because he's not using video. He's using he's using a shuttered Nikon cool. It's a really crappy little camera in, in, by today's comparison. So that means that Tammy Jernigan is clearly lying mm. and that the shuttle was taken out by an incoming and the Air Force and NASA was all over this, so I sent them my report. But wait a minute. So there was a ray going downwards towards it? Oh, it's not a ray. No. Like a beam? No, it's not a beam. No, it's corkscrewing. It's almost like it's emitting some type of, of smoke oh, wow. or, or fuel exhaust because the trail stays... In each frame, the length of the trail that it leaves behind gets longer and longer and longer, just like a jet trail on a jet, right? It doesn't Mm. go away right away. Mm. 
So that's why this can't be lightning, because if it was lightning, it would be gone. But mm. it's the whole length of the trail of the purple incoming gets longer and longer and longer. And even after it hits the Columbia, it's still residually hanging in the air. Mm. Now, that, that's impossible for lightning. Lightning doesn't do that. Mm. So we were lied to like crazy. This is a clear example of, of an unknown coming from this mesospheric norosphere region, which in this report from um, Fort Collins, Colorado, called for the NASA needed to investigate more in this particular region of the Earth's atmosphere because there were things going up there that they simply could not explain. Mm. So I've got lots of pictures, both the NASA images to send you as, as well as the reports of the of, of what was the mission of Colombo? I don't understand why that was so important to take out when they are not taking out the others. Well, the, see, there's two things. When the space shuttle goes up, it has a classified military mission. Mm. I've really researched this deeply. Then it has publicly available data missions where they're doing scientific experiments. So we don't know the classified mission and we don't know were they putting Star Wars weapons in space and whoever these beings are. And, and I suspect that these ETs have maintained bases on Earth for thousands of years. Yeah, according to Stephen Greer, they are all the time putting up, that they are experimenting with dangerous exotic weapons and they're putting them on our satellites. And um, if he's right, if he's half right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if our satellites are way out, 25,000 25, miles away from Earth, they're, they're way, way out there. They're mm. way out there. And, and they would be, if something military took out the Columbia, and the, but the corkscrewing starts not that much higher in altitude above the Columbia. So maybe this thing came in from a satellite and then it starts emitting this vapor which could be its thrust right but mm. again to turn it 90 degrees would have to be something magnetic yeah it would have to be something magnetic involved in order to make a turn like that or something anti-gravitic i mean when i think of anti-gravity i don't think of combating the curvature of space-time, I think of magnetism, because magnetism can overcome gravity quite easily. Mm. Um, there are very, we can go more into that later. When you say corkscrew, I'm thinking of spiral, I'm thinking torsion, and uh, I'm thinking the Norway spiral, do you remember that one? Yeah, but no, this here, I'll send you a picture of it okay. on your Skype chat, on my Facebook, and so you can see this is one of Peter Goldie's photographs right here. And I'll, let me send you a picture of it before that. Here's a picture of it. This is taken off a TV screen. That oh, look at that. Well, wait a minute. Which one is the corkscrew? Oh, now I see. No, yeah, the shuttle looks like that. The corkscrewing is the shuttle is streaking by left to right. Yeah, okay which is just a straight line. Yeah. And then I, I sent you another one, which is the shot before that one. And then I'll show you the one 
This is the one where it, these are Peter Goldie's photographs, wow. and he's dead now, so his his images are yeah. being used under fair use laws. This is definitely not a lightning strike, <laughs> right? There's no there's no tentacles. Lightning always has tentacles. So here's the third the third one I sent you, and now notice how the vapor trail. And I'll send you a final one. It remains in the air. It does, and it's uh, exactly hitting the shuttle. Yeah, it's. It was meant. It was trying. It was going after it. Yep. And you, if you look at your, I've kind of sent you the photographs in reverse, right? So yep. you. Yeah, but they are t telling everything. But actually, it, it looks like the tether. <laughs> now here. Oh look! It's no. It's purple. Huh. Here, this was on Coast to Coast AM because I talked about this on Coast to Coast AM. Look yeah. at this. You'll see the image. This is the NASA image that was sent to me from MIT. I'm going to send you that one from Coast to Coast. It shows the Space Shuttle Columbia. Peter Goldie's photos above. And then you'll see the image of the incoming strike, mm. NASA image, and three UFOs ahead of it. Yeah. Right. Wow. And those three UFOs ahead of it are not stars because we don't see you, you need a pretty good exposure to see stars on a camera you mm. need your asa up at 64,000 6400 yeah, we wear that you only saw those three stars and not a million of others so. right so th those are clearly low earth orbit um and objects so these these photos I posted on Facebook. I have way more than this. I I, I just got to find them. Mm. Remember, your your lightning speed is over two hundred seventy thousand miles an hour. That's real lightning. So, so these things, because we know the speed of the Columbia is twelve and a half thousand miles an hour, that these things are are not doing um, anywhere near the speed of lightning. So, so this again, when when Greer says that there's the ETs are all friendly and they're enlightened, mm. how that we we have several incidences where the when we're when we're developing nuclear weapons, for example, you'll see the UFOs hovering over our facilities. They seem to be very concerned about nuclear weapons. And and what we're doing down here, right? So, mm. so these these fo the photographs which I have multiple of that came from MIT, which were NASA's cameras, were proof that this wasn't an artifact of the guy's camera, which Tammy Jernigan tried to say. So we've got we've got a mystery going on. We've got either demigods, goddesses that have space and earth bases in the solar system for thousands of years they're ve they're not interested in us at all which is why they don't communicate with us they don't want to land on the white house lawn and want to meet the president but mm -hmm. either that or there's some type of biologicals that also don't seem to want any involvement of uh of certain things in the space environment. And so what was on that payload on that shuttle? Were we going to be weaponizing space with it? I mean, there's a lot of possibilities, right? Mm. But uh, before we, I, I want to take you up on the queue there and, and transit over to the nature as biological, etc. But I, I also want to remind you that I'm wondering about the tether. Let's take that first. Do you think that was a sabotage? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think the tether was a very delicate, gentle sabotage. I mean, first of all, NASA's calculations on how thick the tether cable of Nomex Kevlar cable had to be to withstand the power charges as it was dragging through the, the Earth's um, ionosphere to produce electricity. It should have been able to handle the charge. But a greater charge hit the the tether and broke it, and, and that's not easy to do. That would be a lot of electricity. Mm. And when you consider, again, the nitrogen fuel tank was emptied, yet nobody manually turned a, um, a remote switch on the shuttle to – because there's a little satellite at the end of the tether that was part of the experiment. Mm. And and they they separated from each other. And so the nitrogen fuel tank gets emptied, which again kind of ionizes around the electric field of the tether, and which is why it looks like a neon tube in space. It's thick. It's about a quarter mile thick. So so you have this 12-mile-long ruler, and you have all these potentially biological or interdimensional UAP UFOs swarming the tether which are pulsing with uh, real wave structure that we talked about last time, mm. a vortex wave structure. So that means that they might have done this. They might have done this to say, pay attention, and mm. we're not, we didn't cause any physical harm, whereas the Columbia, there was physical harm, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody died. There must have been some really sinister boy uh, mission there for them to intervene this dramatically. Yeah, I believe so. There, there must have been, on the military payload, there must have been something on that mission that the ETs saw as a threat. And maybe because the military has known about the ET, when they say a threat, you don't have a threat unless you have proof of a threat. Mm. And and Greer's right in that department. Like you, it's not beyond rational means that if they feel that we're going to attack them, that they would prevent that by taking out, or you know, the weaponizing of space, right? Mm -hmm. So, but uh, <clears throat> look, Dolan is also right that if this, if if the military were honest, then they would need to behave as if it's a threat because. They are clearly flying in our airspace with no risk, with no, um, you know, with audacity. Yeah. And uh, any military that is surpassed technologically uh, is the prime job to take it seriously. Now, but we know that they know about this since at least the 50s, probably the 40s. And we also see that they don't have a care in the world. Our military is shooting at them all the time, are following them. Yeah. There's no paranoia here. There's no fear here. Our, our military is brazen. And I think the, the only reason they can be that is that they know that generally they pose no immediate threat in that they are not going to shoot back or anything like that. That has to be... So, obviously, our military knows something about them. Oh, so, if they were, let's say, organic, or if they were from another dimension, and they were not people 
or humanoids from another planet coming here, you know, to colonize or to invade, etc., then they could be this uh, brazen. But if they were actual spaceship, you know, 3D with people like us in them, then they would have to be much more paranoid and uh, yeah, they would. afraid of them. And there, see, when you study eyewitness accounts of, of UFOlogy going way back, we we have descriptions of very human-looking, gorgeous Nordic gods and goddesses in spaceships that eyewitnesses have seen. And then we also have the greys, and we have, you know, the, the greys is a harder subject because... A lot of your abduction cases are probably non-physical. I, I read. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I I read um, John Mack's book, and and you know he he clearly sees this, and so does Graham Hancock. You know, I've read Visionary, his book Visionary, and seen his theories. Mm. There's no doubt that there's correlations between ancient tribal peoples of Africa and Australia, and the Greys as a phenomenon behind sleep or in the dream state or also with the use of, of, um, of certain plant based or chemical based, um, um, consciousness altering substances. So I'm not, I can't say that I believe the grays are necessarily, um, a purely physical being, I also understand that, you know, color and light very well. Like, you know, when I was a, used to deliver newspapers when I was in elementary school and in as a kid and at nighttime you're walking around at four in the morning and everything's gray everything's gray mm. until you have sunlight right mm. and if you have a street light depending on the spectrum of the bulb on the street light you, you start to see a certain amount of color but you don't see a lot of great color even with the street light but when the sun comes out you see all the colors mm. so that so that means what i'm saying is when people see grays in this very low light environment it doesn't necessarily mean they're gray right if you look at a dolphin skin up up close yeah in darkness all cats are gray right right <laughs> and, and a dolphin has these little sparkles of color in their gray so mm. we don't really know what a gray really is would look like in sunlight we don't really know but the, to to assume that all aliens are grays I mean, if you read Zechariah Sitchin's work, there were beings described that looked like greys that were actually AIs, and they did tasks, right? They did mining. They, mm. they could. I mean, you can get you can get AI to build cars and build spaceships in the future. So, so therefore, yeah, biological robots has been suggested for them. But sure. uh, you know, uh, the, the interesting thing is that. Uh, we have these mach machine elves that they are called, and oh. other words for them, that people see in higher uh, consciousness states that also look, uh, appear like they are robots of some sort. Right. But the problem, I think a huge problem is our definitions, because if you go back to the ancient Pythagoreans, they were talking about that everything is material or that everything is spiritual. It depends on your perspective. It's just a frequency difference. Mm -hmm. Now, if we adopt that uh, paradigm that we're just talking about different frequencies, which is the most scientifically correct to do, who's to say that? Because our consciousness can obviously, although normally our consciousness is limited by the 
very small uh, ranges of our five senses. But we know that in altered consciousness states, we can grasp much more. So we know that the consciousness can move up in frequency and down in frequency. Right. Now, if an entity does it, not a consciousness, but an entity, then when it lowers its frequency, it would start eventually to materialize, as we would say, right? We could start to sense it. We could start to measure it. The energy uh, would have to do some kind of uh, atomic bindings in order to uh, sustain a vehicle, a body uh, uh, in this 3D. Right. So, but who's to say that these are not the same as the elves, the angels, the spirits of, of ancient lore? And that, that's what Graham Hancock is saying in Visionary, because he goes right. into the fairies, the fairy circles... And the idea of a circle as a vortex or a portal and that a UFO itself may not be a metallic mm. lens-shaped vortex. It might actually be an energy field and it's it's a portal. But we have metal samples to, to disprove yeah. that. We, yeah. we have – the UFO I saw in Berkeley in 1968 was clearly metallic. I mean, but there's some truth to what he's saying in the sense that they – See, mass and energy in Einstein's formula, energy is equal to mass times the speed of light squared, tells us that mass is energy, firstly. Mm. And that energy, all energy can be increased or decreased in frequency. And there's a point when mass and energy becomes pure energy in the sense that it's pure frequency that goes beyond the spectrum of of what we can perceive with our eyes because of the limitation of seeing from red to, to violet. So hmm. NASA's cameras, again, those particular cameras could see near and ultraviolet photons, but NASA had also cameras that could see very specific areas of the, of the infrared bands as well. So hmm. they, they, I mean, this is all verified in emails and correspondence to me by Joseph Newth III, the head of the astrochemistry branch in those days in NASA, mm. in these long conversations and debates we were having. So if, if energy is – if you see everything as, as energy, you also have to understand the human brain – our brain waves are actually electromagnetic. They're very weak in amplitude, but they are electromagnetic waves. And when you think of, for example, we dream in theta and the earth frequency, the Tesla Schumann resonance is 7.83 hertz is the fundamental based on the circumference of the earth. Mm -hmm. So the way you calculate a frequency is you take a measurement. So let's say we're going to measure the wavelength in feet, right? Mm -hmm. So you resolve your speed of light to the speed of light in feet per second. And then you measure your wavelength in feet and you take the speed of light in feet per seconds divided by the wavelength and you have your frequency. Mm. And what's amazing, when you measure a 7.83 hertz brain wave, it's the size of the earth. That's how big that wave is. So a, when, when humans are really relaxed, we're tapped into Gaia. Our, our wavelength of our brain at that frequency in a meditative state is equal to the size of the earth. So we slip into the entire earth field when we're that relaxed. Now, when, when we're more relaxed and we go into delta, which is 
most people don't dream in delta because they no, that's deep sleep yeah but those waves so let's say i take a wave of one hertz you know how freaking big that is that's way bigger than earth it's huge one hertz is one uh, one hit per second the the wavelength so you take the speed of light divided by the wave uh, by the frequency and you get your wavelength using the same unit of measure mm. so that's how you can see like like if i do because i have a file here where i i use the the most and again the speed of light wobbles a little bit it's a it not exact like i've resolved the speed of light in row qubits per second the speed of light in inches per second mm. so here's my speed of light in feet per second here's my speed of light so I'll tell you how big one hertz is here. So what you do is you go in your calculator. So I take the speed of light in in feet per second divided by one foot uh, by one by frequency of one, mm -hmm. and my wavelength is nine hundred eighty-three point five thousand feet divided by five thousand two hundred eighty feet in a mile. Oh, I just messed it all up again. Okay, I got to do this again. So I, I hit the wrong button. <laughs> That's okay. So divided by a frequency of one. It's real. It's really a huge wave. Divided by one. Do you, do you have an approximation in terms of kilometers? That's what I'm used to. Miles we don't use over here. Well, you just divide it by 1.6. So okay. it, it comes to, um, uh, because it's one, it comes to 186,000. 282.397051 miles is the wavelength. So I divide that by pi, and to get my my uh, circumference, my, my diameter, it, it's 59,000 miles across. Like, so in kilometers, it's times 1.6. Oh wow! And then you, it's more. So you've got you've got 95,000 kilometers across. So that's way bigger wow. than Earth, right? So that's the potential of the human consciousness. So when you're, wow. if you can be conscious in delta when the brain is at one hertz, you're in a massive wave. It's not as big as Jupiter, but you're you're somewhere between Earth and Jupiter in the size of the consciousness of the wave that you're tuned into. You know what I just realized, David? Th that means that our consciousness potentially can reach far beyond Earth, meaning it can reach that mysterious area where stuff is happening. What did you call it? Ignorosphere? <laughs> the ignore oh, you're, you're, yeah, at that wavelength, you're, you're definitely way past. Yeah, actually, it'd be interesting to do a... No wonder we can interact with the UAPs up there, consciousness. Right, because in your sleep... Exactly. When you go lower in frequency than the wavelength of Earth, you're in the atmosphere around the Earth. And that's why I think these where these abductions are happening. Mm. They're happening in, in consciousness. Mm. It's very rare that an alien would physically come into your house and put something in you or mess with you, right? So mm. there's... When I saw the UFO in Berkeley in 1968, I had dreams of them for nights, uh, many, many nights. Mm. And they were very Nordic, humanoid. They put, they paralyzed my body. I couldn't move my body, which really freaked me out as a kid at seven years old, eight years old. And and they showed me their propulsion systems. They showed me a counter-rotational vortex, right? And mm. they, they they talked to me. And and I there is no UFOlogy 
1968 in Berkeley that I can relate to. I told my mom and my dad was getting a PhD in psychology and like at the university. And I'm like, they don't know what to tell me. I saw a UFO and I'm having mm. these dreams. Mm. And so that's where the contact occurs. We're looking for contact to show up on your cell phone or in some radio signal, but that's, they do it through consciousness. See, another thing yep. people do with my systems is I can magnetically stimulate a human nervous system with two of my coils and put the latitude and longitude into the nervous system and your energetic body will go there and you'll experience it on an energetic level. You work with wow. the same frequencies for a week or two. And I've done this and had unbelievable experiences. Like I did... The latitude and longitude, firstly, for the location of where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, because it's actually the same spot where the prophet Elijah ascended up, right? So mm -hmm. th this gave me a spiritual experience beyond all words. I, I, I experienced something that I, I can't explain is, is a level of consciousness that is one of my favorite experiences of my whole life. And then another time, and I did this recently— I gave myself magnetically the latitude and longitude of the the temple of Mary Magdalene. And, and that night, that night, I floated above my house out of body and the Pallades star system was hovering. It's as if you were looking through a pair of good binoculars. I have some really expensive binoculars here. Mm -hmm. And if I look at Pallades, it pulls them right close to my eyes, right? I can see all seven stars and all the little ones. It looked like that, but it was right above my house. And I thought, why am I seeing the Pleiades when I did these frequencies? Well, when you go in the Magdalene Temple, you see the menorah, the seven-candle menorah, which many people have equated to the Pleiades, mm. which, is, which, is, which is a Jewish, ancient Hebrew symbol of the seven lights. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was my experience that night. It's, mm. it's like there was a pair of binoculars in the energetic field that pulled the Pleiades right above the top of my house. And I'm literally floating inside of the seven stars. And again, to, to create, when you understand how a vortex works, think of a vortex as a magnetic lens. And, and if you understand that light is electromagnetism, if I create a magnetic vortex, I can pull a distant star system close to me so I can experience this energy field. Mm. So what I'm saying is I could give your body magnetically the latitude and the longitude, but you'd have to give me an exact one. Yeah, yeah. And here's where it gets more amazing when it comes to frequency. So you'll notice that, that like, if you read um, Mark 6, 1 through 8, which happens to be the golden ratio, you know, 6, 1, 8, mm. Uh, Jesus is telling the apostles that before they disperse, no money in your purse, no bread, no sandals, just your staff. You got to have your staff. So I started researching, you know, the idea that when you when you look in ancient Egypt and all these pictograms, you're going to see all these deities holding their staff, holding their staff, holding their staff. So. You go all the way back to all the prophets in the Bible, and every single one of them has their staff. Every single one of them, and one of my favorite accounts is the is the is the prophet Elijah, who 
at a very, very advanced stage in his enlightenment, he has a disciple who is Elisa, and he he tears his robe in half. He gives half to Eliza, and he spins it, and he and he and he clearly has a staff. Mm. He spins it, and he creates a vortex, and he goes shooting up into the sky physically, and he's gone. <laughs> Where did he go? I've been up there. I've skydived from thirty thousand feet, and I had to train for months in order to do that. You can't survive up there, and when you get way up there, your body explodes like a zit because there's no pressure to hold your skin together. So, so where did he go? Well, when you look at the prophet Ezekiel, we see the visions of Ezekiel where he sees this giant, you know, wheels within wheels supercraft, yeah, yeah. and we we understand the idea of even the the miracle at Fatima in Portugal in 1917, October 13th, when the miracle of the sun was a a disk, uh, a craft that superimposed itself between the the witnesses and the sun because it wasn't observed anywhere else on the earth. It was only observed between the observers and the sun. You had this craft, and there are reports in there, and, and this is in in Graham Hancock's visionary book, where there were beings actually seen in, in these gold, in this golden, you know, luminous disc. And so you, you have these, you have these categories of UFO or craft probably exist in the warfaring ET sector. And then you have what you call the demigod goddess realms, which are well documented in the Buddhist, the Hindu and even the Christian and the Gnostic Christian literature, they sure. they are totally human. They're documented in the Greek literature. They they live in in physical paradise planetary realms. They're they're not super illuminated light beings, but they are physical beings and they fly around in the Vimanas and all of these different crafts that are named in different religious um, um, uh, manuscripts. But then above them, you have the super illuminated beings, which are way beyond the the concept of of physical pleasure based paradise realms, and they operate with with um, I mean it, it's described as one of the levels of the angels, what are called thrones, hmm. and thrones are basically like you go to the Book of Enoch. In the beginning, God comes down in this. It's literally made of crystal. The description in the Book of Enoch is a crystal craft that the archangel Gabriel and Michael are sitting on either side of the throne of the of who is called the Ancient of Days, this super illuminated being that's so bright that Enoch can't even look at his face, and he falls down on the ground, and God tells him, this, 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 this God, the supreme Ancient of Days, tells him to stand up and come aboard and gain eternal life, and then he he flies through the universe, and Enoch sees stars going by the the window, what's called the portal, and clearly he's in a craft that's made of crystal, that's vibrating a flame with light, and he's moving through the he's moving through the solar system and, and given some sort of oration. So again, you what I'm showing you is there's these different levels of craft, and the the grays that seem to be more like AIs that have tasks. They're like they have all sorts of tasks. I think they are the they they are technology that's used by the gods and the goddess beings to collect 
data on the evolution of human DNA. So they'll take a DNA sample from a person mm. and, and they want to know how we're doing down here and, and what we're made out of and why everything's so fucked up. So why, why, what's going on in the DNA to explain this, this incredibly insane behavior that's going on down there. And then they, they do some DNA mixing and try to make hybrids until they have a perfect new regenesis recalibrated human they won't release it after our extermination right so mm. humans have been exterminated periodically in these great cycles there isn't one genesis there's been multiple genesis extinction elements yes it has yeah totally. but let's let's finish up the ufo tread now i, I want to comment um upon this and uh, indulge me because i have a longer reasoning and then i want your take on it okay um we were talking about um their nature. And I, I'm, I'm with uh, Dr. Heineck and Jacques Vallée on this, because Jacques Vallée wrote in one of his books, I think it was Messengers of Deception. He went through, and Richard Dolan has done the same, he went through the statistics. And he concluded, like Heineck did, that if these are travelers from another planet, you know, just like us, just going into a spaceship, and I know now I'm light years away, he says, there's too many landings this right according to the statistics there there would be like millions of landings every year if this was true his only conclusion is that this is there's a deception going on that all our encounters with these beings are staged that's the only explanation that they want to be seen and that they're saying when they are seen i mean and so this argument that there's too many of them to be it would be an invasion fleet, is backed up by this data that we got in more modern times with NASA TV when we see thousands of uh, what seems to be organical entities. So there's just too many to be. But I don't doubt that. I, I, I have two reasons for some of them to be metallic. Number one, it's kind of an exotic thing. It's about egregores. It's that they kind of take the shape. They interact with our consciousness and we project because we can't understand this phenomena. We kind of, it's like we're meeting an archetype. We have to project onto it something that we can understand because the perception itself doesn't give us information we can make use of just like a baby a baby gets all the vibrations around it but it hasn't trained itself up to read the structure of what's going on around it and so therefore it can't make sense of these shapes and colors yet Mm -hmm. and in a similar way we could be interacting with these ufos so if this is 500 years ago and i'm a devout catholic of course i'm seeing an angel or john Virgin Mary. But today, yes, I would see something technological. Mm-hmm. So I think that could be part of the explanation. But you also say very correctly that we have metallic uh, debris and stuff. So maybe some of them, when they do uh, go down into this specter of vibration where we are interacting, maybe they do then become metallic. But more than that, I'm sure we have developed crafts Mm-hmm. Uh, back engineered probably maybe we tesla technology whatever but i think there's a, a classified space fleet uh, there's so much indications of that and um, we may be emulate even if these are beings and not crafts per se our scientists could study how they work and then 
reverse engineer that, if you see what I mean. Right. Any comment to this secret space program thing? Oh, one more thing. Ed Grimsley is the name of a chap who, uh, he, rest in peace, he's dead now, but he was in the vanguard of these binoculars. What do they call them? They call them night vision Googles. Third generation could see into, I think it was the ultraviolet or the infrared, one of them. And People who use them see UFOs all the time. Or UAPs is better to say. They're unexplained, they're aerial, and they are phenomenal. And some of them are even shooting on each other, what seems to be shooting on each other, where rays go from one to another. So some people think there's a war in heaven. <laughs> right. But I think it could be us shooting on them, or they could do anything. Energy exchange, I don't know. Any comment to this rant? Well, you can. Yeah, I I knew Ed Grimsley. I met him at conferences in in the old days. You know, when I used to speak at a lot of the conferences in person, and you know, he they, they I've looked through those type of of military goggles. They're they're infrared. They're not they're not seeing ultraviolet. Um, okay. There was at one point a really good um, near and far UV thirty five millimeter digital camera came out and it got banned they banned the sale of it which was really wow. strange to me there there are no cameras i know of today that can see far uv photons but the there's a wealth of these things in our our space environment and they're i think it, at very least some of them are not necessarily even organic, but energetic, mm. that they're living in some way. They're not piloted, I would say, by gods or AI. Some of them could be probes that, again, like we we send probes to Mars, and so some of them could be probes. They, they don't communicate with each other in the electromagnetic spectrum. And mm. I've, in my in my consciousness because I've calculated thousands of frequencies looking at temples as frequency tuners, the, the staffs throughout the ages, which were made of metal, by the way, they're not wooden shafts. The, the real ones were, were metallic and they're because they're more conductive. I mean, yeah. wood has, wood is carbon. So it's going to have some, some flow of electricity on a much weaker level, but, um, from the real sources, yet some of them are wood, and some some of them have the copper coil and the wood, and some of them have the copper coil and are sapphire and aluminum. And uh, a sapphire is an aluminum crystal. And I, I believe the functions of the staffs in the hands of the trained prophets and mystics were to, to telecommunicate through the nervous system. With the ETs. I mean, there's a guy that I work with. You have to interview him. His name is mm -hmm. Jimmy Blanchett. He's an amateur radio guy, and he's been making contact at two very interesting frequencies, 432 megahertz and 144.1 megahertz. And what's interesting about those is that for, everybody knows about 432, and middle A was detuned to, you know, to... A440, and the, the French used to use, you know, middle A at 432, which is more harmonic. But what's it, what really blew my mind is when I calculated the wavelength of the breastplate of Aaron as a square wave 
um, antenna receiver, just like a, a satellite dish, the circumference of a satellite dish is proportional to the frequency that it can receive that. Mm-hmm. And it turns out the frequency of the breastplate of Aaron was 432 megahertz. It freaking blew my mind. I said, why, why 432 and why the golden ratio and why does Jimmy Blanchett... Get- Wait a minute. Megahertz, that means 1,000 hertz. So we're talking 40... 40- no, mega is million, million. So 432 million hertz. 432 million hertz, yeah. Okay. okay. So remember, the internet today is way past that. It's in the gigahertz bands. Yeah. The billion hertz. So... So the wavelength of, of the breastplate of Aaron, if you use, if you do the math using the correct qubit and the correct measurement, is 432 megahertz. So that would mean the God of the prophets was tuning the, them to 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 receive and transmit at 432 megahertz, or that for so Jimmy Blanchett using these these handheld radios and sending out signals on this massive antenna in Arizona that sends out signals at using 75,000 watts of power all the way up to 150,000 watts of power. Mm-hmm. He sends them out at 432 megahertz and then the radios start chattering. They start making all these tonal uh, language type blips and we've decoded these blips and in fact, Nikola Tesla and Marconi both reported in Collier's Weekly magazine way back in the day of Tesla that there was this strange phenomena happening in the early radios where they were hearing what they thought was Morse code, but it wasn't Morse code. It was mm. these little blip sounds. And so I learned how to do this and actually started getting um, – decoding what the blips mean the blips are actual numerical value frequencies and each blip is a different frequency and when i started decoding the frequencies i mean jimmy blanchett and i have been doing this for a couple of a year and a half together and if you send out the right frequency these ets their craft appear at the end of his antenna in these incredible configurations. I mean, his Mm. cameras are catching them. So we now have a language of frequency that we communicate back and forth with him through these experiments he does on his antennas, and they're teaching us mathematics. That is mind-blowing mathematics. Mm. Mm. So that's part of it. The tuning your nervous system to the right frequencies repeatedly as an exercise... Like, again, Moses used his staff for 30 years before he became very powerful with it, right? Mm. So it's not like you're going to use this thing once and all of a sudden see light shining out of the top of your head. It's it's like using a guitar. You're going to play guitar for, for 10 years and you're really going to start becoming a musician, right? You're really going to start vibrating with all the frequencies that you're playing on your guitar. You know what, David? This is such a deep topic. We shouldn't do a show on this in itself then. Sure. Because I'd love to discuss sacred geometry and music with you, but people need to be primed. Mm. Because uh, unbeknownst to you, we've had shows about kind of, we've had shows about sacred geometry, about how sound is used spiritually, metaphysically. So they're kind of primed to your stuff. But I think you also ought to explain your approach to sound and uh, and spirituality and all that. You understand? 
Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, it's just going to be a lame sales pitch. But if yeah, they get the context, they realize that you're burning for this. This is a real thing. And, and Oh, it's a real thing. I mean, this is how they communicated with the ETs, with the gods, the goddesses, because right. that's the point that you have these different bands of UFOs. You have the warfaring ones. You have the, the, the pleasure god, goddess realms, and you have the super enlightened beings in, in, in all your major world religions. The instrument mm. that tuned the nervous system to be able to communicate with them is the staff, is what I'm saying. So, so This magical staff. It is the magical staff, and that's what made them extra powerful. So they're, otherwise, mm. you have these things flying around. Like it, it, I'm at the point now where somebody posts another... UFO picture on Facebook. Like I don't care. I, <laughs> we have seen enough, right? <laughs> we've seen enough. They're flying around. How come they don't want to talk to you? Well, you start tuning your nervous system. You start having experiences like I have because I haven't even gone into my experiences. And when you mm. start having these experiences, the whole thing becomes so real, mm. so incredibly real when you start meeting them and they start showing up in your field mm. and you know – this isn't your imagination. This is really happening. Mm. See, they the very advanced beings, imagine your 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 stage of enlightenment gets so advanced and you're vibrating at this super high frequency. Do you care what the mice are doing under the house? Right. Oh. Right. Yeah, you have to meet them uh, on the level they're operating in. Right. But I want to say, by the way, the myths or everything backs this up. Uh, we have, you know, the kings of old always needed a rod. The witches had their broomsticks. All wizards are depicted with a staff, you know, like Gandalf. And uh, another archetype is the magician, right? Even a stage magician needs their stick. Mm -hmm. Right. So there, there's something there for sure. Right. By the way, how much time do we have left? Well, we can we can go probably an hour and a half today. So, because I want to go deeper into the staff. Yeah, me too. Because the staff is a tool that, I mean, I sell these on my website. We actually make these. It took me years because I wanted to know it, the height of a monopole antenna is one quarter of a wavelength. Mm -hmm. It's really amazing how it works because mm -hmm. just like E is equal to MC squared, and squared is of course a square. Right. You, mm -hmm. you take side A times side A and you have the, the whatever unit you're using, you have the number of squares within the square. And the square root is the, is the square root is the side of the length of one of the sides of the square. But okay. a wavelength coming off a monopole is four times the height. So it's not the same as a square formula, but it is the measurement of the perimeter of the square. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I draw a line to the height of my staff. And in the books of Moses, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, God tells Moses to put a fiery brass serpent on a pole. Okay. Now, brass is mainly copper and tin, right? Mm -hmm. So the serpent is really in the language of symbols. It's not an actual snake. You're not putting a burning snake on a pole. That would be stupid. <laughs> he put. He's putting a copper coil on a pole. Now, when Nikola Tesla invented radio, that's exactly what he did. Mm. And in June 21st, 1943, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Tesla, Sorrell, Lodge, and Stone were the true fathers of radio and that Marconi 
which is what the lawsuit was about, used their patents to broadcast across the Atlantic, and that he wasn't the father of radio, but he did demonstrate radio, but he he used Tesla's patents, and he also used Lodge and Stone. So all Tesla did to create the first radio was to coil copper wire, mm. and he, he created an induction radio, demonstrated at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. So that means Mo- he, he was copying Moses. Mm. And, and so when when you understand that the, the original staff would have had a brass, copper, and tin coil coming down the pole, and you're holding on to it. And, and when I started studying, I needed to find the length of, of the staff, because if you know the length, you know the frequency. Mm. And it ter- turns out, in the book of Hebrews, it lay inside the Ark of the Covenant at two and a half cubits. So there you go. It's two and a half cubits. Now you got to find the right cubit. And in the book of Ezekiel, clearly in multiple places, God does not use the standard cubit. It said, a cu- God says a cubit is a cubit plus a hand. That's a royal cubit. That's not a regular cubit. And mm. so many people get this wrong because if Moses' staff was two and a half cubits of standard measurement, he would be a midget. He'd be walking with his pole <laughs> way down low, hunched over. But when you do the right measurement, I found the perfect, perfect cubit. It resolves everything to f- absolutely flawless measure. And when you understand this, the Great Pyramid of Egypt is exactly 280 cubits, which, according to Le Miserie, finishes at 480.69 feet. And if you do the math, you'll find the right cubit. And the right cubit, see, the height of Solomon's temple is 30 cubits. And guess what happens? You're not even going to believe this number. It mm-hmm. is mind-blowing what this means. So it's 20.601 inches per royal cubit. Now, you, you multiply that by 30 cubits high for Solomon's temple, it's 618.03. Do you know what that is? Six point. No, 618.03 inches is the height of... That's the golden ratio. Golden ratio, which yeah. Which is 1 to 1.618.03, 3.9887 to perfection. So it's absolutely... Mm. And if you do Noah's Ark, which is 300 cubits, 300 cubits... Times 20.601, guess what? Golden mean. Golden number again. Uh-huh. 61803. So in inches. So you end up with golden number everywhere mm. where there's 30 or 3 or 300 or 3,000 cubit measurements, which means you have the right cubit. Now, guess what else happens? The, the breastplate of Aaron, because Aaron's got the staff, and Moses got his staff to go up the mountain. Uh-huh. And this supreme ancient of days comes down above the mountain to land on the mountain to meet with humans and tells tells Aaron to tell the people if they get too close to the mountain, they will burn to death because their energy fields, their nervous systems are not tuned to the right frequency to cross this line. It's not that God kills them. You get too close to this being, you will incinerate. Now, Remember, when Jesus resurrected, he incinerated his image on the Shroud of Turn because his frequency in his light body was so much more powerful mm. that if you—I've done experiments on this, Al. So I've taken a frequency meter, and I take a, a plate of metal. Doesn't I can take copper or anything. And those frequencies will go right through the copper, right through the steel, right through the silver. But if I, if I take— a staff 
that is set into the earth and connected to my charge plate, the radiation goes to ground. Mm. So I realized that one of the purposes of carrying the staff is the intense radiation on these blinding apparitions of divine beings in their light bodies would incinerate a human being's nervous system via electrical inductance. If they had a staff and they were grounded, they wouldn't incinerate. Mm. So, so there's one reason to have the staff. The second is understanding that it has a specific frequency. Mm-hmm. And so now that we how, know... How can you interact with that frequency? Is it through sound? Oh, no, no. See, people buy my staff. They're very beautifully handcrafted in Sedona. They connect it to a single signal generator, and they do frequency training at very low amplitude through the nervous system. And you can measure it with a tri-field meter in RF mode. If you're holding the staff in the right hand, you can measure the frequencies coming off your left hand. Your whole skeleton, because it's calcium, and calcium is a conductive metal, will vibrate at the frequencies given that the staff mm. is emitting. So so slowly you're raising your frequency, right? So which is the purpose that every single prophet and why Jesus tells the apostles in Mark 6, 1 through 8, there's your golden ratio again, mm. right? So, and there's your golden ratio in the cubit, which I just showed you. And so therefore, when you do frequency training on your nervous system, you raise your frequency And the first thing you experience when your frequency is harmonically tuned to the right frequency, not just any old frequency, you start to feel this incredible ecstasy. It's literally a supernatural level of ecstasy beyond any drug, beyond any plant, beyond anything. Okay, look, I want to discuss this much, much more. But before we do that, I want us to just finish off the UFO topic. And it's pretty related, actually, because I'd like to hear more about your, uh, you call it the cosmic clock, I think. And also, you mentioned that uh, you had a current idea, a current understanding of how this anti-gravity technology would function involving tungsten. Uh, What you call it in English, not thrust, but the engine thing. With the tungsten, and then we move over to the clock. So those two cues are like us to start with before we go over to the mere vibration talk. Well, okay. So when I mean, you look at you look at the a lot of people out there, and this happened over 15 years ago. Is there was this craze of people making coils that uh, out of copper wire with different geometries. And Marco Roden, who who is a, a great teacher and somebody that I respect very well, him and I have met and talked in person, had this incredible conversation. And Marco said, you know, you have no idea how much your galaxy clock inspired me. And I said, you have no idea how many people you've he's inspired, right? Mm. Because Marco Roden came up with this phenomenal mathematic formula and 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 ratio and sequence of numbers that led to a vortex mathematical model that inspired coil makers to make coils that they called rodent coils. And Marco told me, I don't make coils. They're using my name, but it's technically not a rodent coil because there's no such thing as a rodent coil because Marco Rodin doesn't make coils. Mm. And But yet people came up with these donut kind of vortex model coils and they were the craze for quite a while. 
And you would see people put a magnet, like a spherical magnet, in the middle of one of his coils, and they would spin at hyper hyper uh, velocities, hyper um, RPMs, revolutions per minute, revolutions per second, and 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 they were studying the fields, and a lot of people thought this was going to lead to anti gravity. And in fact, I was already making coils in, a, in in the premise for making vortex mathematics when I had this vision in the middle of the day I think it was Tesla's birthday on January <laughs> Tesla's uh, sorry, death of course day, not his was. birthday his death day oh. January the 7th which was uh, the year 2000 at the mark of the millennium and in the middle of the afternoon, these three beings of light appeared to me in my living room in my apartment in Vancouver, BC. And one of them was Tesla, and they were wearing white robes with gold cords. And Tesla looked at me. He didn't say anything. He flashed these geometrical models into my mind, and I immediately wrote them down by hand, really sloppy. And I I understood everything without any words being spoken, how to generate, how the curvature of space-time was born, how gravity is created from electromagnetism, and how to generate faster-than-light signals and move fa energy faster than the speed of light and eventually move a physical object faster than the speed of light. Have you shared this insight in any book? Well, no, th this is in my film, Evidence the Case for NASA UFOs, right? Mm. Which is my, my first DVD that came out um, in the year. Actually, the, should, shouldn't it be in the book version then? Well, I, I do. I, we did have the book version, but I don't think anybody has that today. There's no publisher today that has the book version. Um, but anyway. Actually, actually, I found it online, just so you know. Yeah, it's. It was a long time ago that we, we came up with it. But the, the galaxy clock, even though it's featured very well, it, there's a galaxy clock phase one and phase two. And if you look at these things, and I've sent you them. Yeah, I'm looking at them right now. You'll see it's it's like a clock. You'll see wheels. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten wheels. Yeah. Rating, you know, starting from smaller to bigger. <laughs> wheels within wheels. It's like Ezekiel, the wheels within the wheels. And yes. then on the outermost wheel, I start with the number zero going in, going counter rotational. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. I, I only go twelve points on the first galaxy clock. And each movement is the distance that light travels per second. So, so light oscillates in a wave and the central axis of the wave travels at what we call the speed of light which is just under 300,000 kilometers per second 299 792 458 or 186,282 miles per second so so we we know with that Einstein says that light cannot go faster than light and he's correct but there's something else that happens that he completely misses in my galaxy clock, my seconds are not human seconds. They're called wave peak seconds. So they're real, they're real seconds in that th the sense that there is a quantum, a quanta, uh, meaning the, the, they're measured at the peak of a wave, 
at it, considering the peak of that wave is proportional to the frequency that the light is traveling at, right? So let's say, I mean, of course, light travels at all sorts of different frequencies, yeah. right? So, so, but you can just pick any consistent. But, but, but wait a minute, I need to understand it. So one, so we're talking, you know, one hertz is one beat or one vibration per second. No, but, no, it's not the same because a galaxy clock is not. See, when you say one hertz is one wave per second, the second part is a human second. But if I create one hertz then there is a wave peak there at the one second mark. And you're that's correct. There has to be a wave peak at the one second mark on this clock. Mm. Whereas with human-made seconds, you can fit as many waves in a second as you want. But as soon as you get to a frequency of one, then we'll say that the galaxy clock is using a frequency of one. But right. it's right. That, that one is in a position that aligns with a human-determined second. Mm. And human determined second is fictional. It's not, yeah, it doesn't yeah. really exist. No. But in a galaxy clock, if our frequency is one, then it does exist because mm. you have a wave there. Mm. And what I'm saying is if you look at the top of the clock, mm-hmm. and, and I sent you the diagram, yep. notice from zero to one and the second wheel in, there's a square. And I've actually coded one of the diagrams in red. That's the speed of light square. Oh, yeah. Uh, The third one has a red square. Yep. Right. So that's the speed of light squared. And that's what Einstein means by the speed of light squared is it's actually squared. Energy is equal to mass times the speed of light squared. But when I when I take my same second, my same wave peak on each wheel going ever inward. Right. Uh Its position moves slightly to the left, to the left, to the left, to the left of the previous wheel. Right. Why is it going counterclockwise? I'm going counterclockwise here just for the demonstration of the vortex. I can go either way. It, oh, it okay. won't make a difference. Okay, okay. Now, each wheel is a wavelength in itself, right? It's, each wheel is actually a, a determinable wavelength itself. So each mm. circle in the clock. And you'll notice when I connect second number one all the way through... It pretty much everything stays a square except for when you get to the the innermost wheel. Yeah, you'll see a little bit of curvature. Uh, you are getting close to the Buddhistic wheel, so to speak. Right, it's starting to. Curve. But but let me just intuitively interpret this. People will who watch the video will see this now. Now, what, how I interpret this is that if you go, let's say the number one, if you can create a passage from the outer to the inner circles you can actually bypass everybody who goes one two three four five six seven eight nine are trapped in time right but if you go if you can find a way to passage directly into the inner circle and then the one within there and then the one in within there is that how we envision that you know they they are skipping the the time uh, limit well see you're, you're getting close so what's actually happening is all wave seconds that are real wave peak seconds that are peaking at the same exact time are bonded right by what's called the quantum entanglement each second is entangled with each other so when there's a connection point between them there's a connection point right right so as you go on the clock, let's go to position number five. You'll mm-hmm. see that the space-time is curving now, right? Yeah. When you connect all your seconds 
And that's exactly what Einstein says causes gravity. The curvature of space-time is gravity itself. Mm. But what I'm showing you here is the bond, which is the quantum entanglement between all real... So, in other words, if there are seconds that are not happening at the same time, they won't do this. It's only the ones that are connected at the same time. Now, if, if I superimpose this over the Milky Way galaxy, mm -hmm. you'll see that this bond is real because you'll see that as you come in, in closer and closer to the center of the Milky Way galaxy, which are smaller and smaller wheels, that they're all bonded and connected and you see the spiral forming of the great galactic arm. Uh, I just realized that this means that if you can create, you know, you said they're entangled. So if you can... Uh, find um... they're they're bonded and entangled and that bond is what's warping the fabric of space to cause gravity right. to be born so so you can actually slip not just through time but also through space and when you go into one point in time you're going to come out at the other equivalent to that point in time but in another place in time yeah it, you'll, you'll see it gets really mind-blowing and, and the same in space right that some places are connected to other places right like portals right that, that's exactly what this says yeah there and this explains einstein's action at a distance which three nobel prize winners just won the nobel prize for that's right. which is really radical to win the nobel prize for this yeah but if you go to position 12 what you'll see, let's go to the the second most innermost wheel. We're still at num uh, number one. No, we're at 12. We'll go to 12. No, yeah, but I mean uh, phase one. Yeah, yeah, phase one. Very bad quality. I can hardly read it. It's very bad quality, yeah, yeah, because I made this in the year 2000 and I scanned <laughs> it with a, a paper scanner. Okay. So notice how long my line on on my my second wheel is. Yeah. compared to the length of the line of, of a single second on the outermost wheel. It's grown, right? Mm. And and that increase in length is meaning the signal is going faster than light because I've it's still only one second. Each movement is one wave, a frequency of one wave per second. Mm. So now I've, I'm actually getting close to um, two times the speed of light right there on the wheel number 12. Now, if you go to phase two clock, the image for phase two, mm -hmm. in phase two, I've removed the data from the first 12, and I started from 12, mm -hmm. and I, I went the next number, 12, uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 24. I went to 24 points. Mm -hmm. Now, at 24 points, if I come to the third inmost wheel in a single second, in a single second, hmm. I've gone four or five times the speed of light already. Hmm. Because that's how long the distance of the curvature of space has crossed. So the gravity force space timeline, why we call it gravity force, is that gravity is being borne by the warping of time. And, and, and time is one second. And space and time are proportional in that one second. And I've now warped it so that it's it's gone uh, almost six times the speed of light. I mean, I have to blow this up to do it exactly and follow each line, which means by the time the outer wheel has gone all the way around the clock, I'm going to be 
way beyond the speed of light in this warping. So this would mean that gravity right now, gravity travels at the same speed as light. Isn't that interesting? Because Newton's third law is every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So if, if light is a force and has an action, it has an equal and opposite which would mean gravity is proportional as an equal and opposite to light. So he should have known right there that light was creating gravity, hmm. but he didn't notice because it only appears to be traveling at the same speed as light because you're in the first square only. Newton is only in the first square. So let's go to my red square on, on the model clock, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. with the little red square. That's where Newton is, yeah. and that's where Einstein is. They're at the speed of light squared. They haven't seen how warped space-time will get and how powerful this signal will get when, it, when the bond between each second is trying to catch up to each other in the smaller and smaller wheels. And these wheels can go all the way down to the quantum level of the atom and smaller, and you're gonna be operating with signals that are incredibly, incredibly fast. And will eventually explain action at a distance, which yeah. is again, these physicists won the Nobel Prize for. Yeah. And also, this is remarkable, because experiments have been done, for example, on a mother and a baby rabbit are both connected to an electroencephalograph, an EEG, mm -hmm. and the, they'll pinprick the baby, and the mother's nervous system on the, um, on the, um, will send a signal out circumventing the speed of light limit instantaneously. Now, guess what that means? Junk DNA, and I'm saying this with incredible amount of thought I put into this, they don't know. Biologists don't. There's, there's no such thing as junk DNA. I know. It, it, <laughs> you're, it's not junk. It, yeah. it's, it's bonded the same way this clock is to each other. Right. And that's why, because the baby shares the mother's DNA, why the signal goes faster than light between the mother and the baby rabbit. Because, because the junk DNA, which they call junk DNA, is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of the same information. Yeah. And the argument is, we need, why do we need so many copies of the same stuff that are identical? Because they're bonded. And that means you, your own biology communicates with itself mm. through this function that I'm showing here. Yeah. That, that is, there, there, there are these theories, uh, you know, reincarnation is a huge topic. There's so many versions of it. One is that you reincarnate in your own bloodline further down. But um, this model that we've uh, looked at now is excellent to explain how they can move in time and space. It's excellent. So to they're moving through time. They're not. They're moving through time, but but real quantum time as opposed to a human-made concept of time. So, but, the, but they they're moving in space too, right? Of course, because yeah. space and time and gravity are exactly. all one. Yeah, so so that's that's excellent. But when you look at them up there, whatever they are, even when they're not jumping into a hole or coming out of one into a, they're still defying the laws of gravity. So there is an anti-gravity thing that's not connected to wormholes 
which no, you don't need a wormhole. You can you can go faster than a jet just by moving through the first three outer wheels on this clock, and that and that's depending on mathematically where you place the clock. So you don't need to go right into the hole in the middle oh. because we're tracking these UAPs at as little as 20,000 miles an hour to as high as 216,000 miles an hour on the Navy data, right? We, I just watched this special again, and Kevin Day, the radar operator on the Princeton, is saying they had a UAP jump 60 miles in a second. That's 216,000 miles an hour. Mm. So that's still not as fast as what we were talking about, mm. about how nuclear fusion with highly charged protons according to Earl Van Wendingham at NASA, could do a tenth the speed of light, which was like 67 million miles an hour. So we're, we're nowhere near that, but we're, we're starting to understand they only need to, to, cause, to, to move through time as a force. They don't have to go into a black hole is what I'm saying. They just yeah, okay. need to warp it a little bit, just right, a little bit, right. and they're going incredibly fast. But what, what when they're just standing still then? You know Hutchinson uh, achieved to have the same effect in his living room. He could get stuff to hover, and they were certainly not going into any holes. See, Hutchinson and I are friends, and we I've been in his lab personally, and I, I interviewed, I got him on, on Art Bell in the early days, and George Norrie. Are you the one who, who brought him out? Yeah, I'm the one who got him on those shows, but... Ah. But Hutchinson was already on the learning. He had already gotten on the History Channel and a bunch of TV. He was well known. Okay, okay. So I didn't discover him, but I did get him on the Art Bell show. So mm. there, <clears throat> I put him in my films, and he's wasting so much energy because what he's done is he's bombarding this cannonball, and it can take weeks before a tin can or a cannonball will levitate. It's not like it happens right away. Right. And I believe what's happening in the Hutchison field is, is a form of of magnetism because he's bombarding electromagnetic energy into a material for sometimes weeks before he'll get it to do something. Mm. And sometimes the metals will deconstruct. Sometimes they'll levitate. He uses Van de Graaff static electricity he uses um some moderate radio frequencies and some x-rays right mm. so so he uses three series of waves that, that operate electrically at different wavelengths mm. and he's playing around with the combination of these three he's playing around with the combination mm. and, and he'll wait a long time and some you have to have tremendous patience but he's even had the RCMP show up because the neighbor's dishes were levitating. And John showed me in person. <laughs> yeah. We're walking down the street, and he said he left his lab, which is his apartment. Yeah. And an entire building vanished. It was just an empty lot. What? Walking by, and then he came no. back, and then it had returned. <laughs> yeah, were the, so, were the people in there? I mean, they yeah. Were... They, see, what happens is everybody's frequency shifts. Once you bombard your target for a long time, everything gets affected by it through electrical inductance. 
But but and, hang on, in the Philadelphia experiment, the people noticed what happened to them. What about the people in this building? Did he report anything about that? Well, the, he didn't explain that to me, and I was really blown away by it because yeah. John was unless John went into an alternate universe and moved through time right, right. before that building was made. Yeah. Like that's another possibility, <laughs> right? When you understand this galaxy clock properly, you'll understand that time is an actual force. It is not a measurement. And there is a time that is a measurement. And then there's a time that is actually a force. And that's yeah, the measurement part is what you call human time, right? Right. Hmm. But the, but if you do a frequency of one and align that one up with human time, then you're, you're, a frequency of one is a huge wavelength that's way bigger than planet Earth. That's it's right. somewhere between Earth and Jupiter. Hmm. It's smaller than Jupiter, but it's it's between – it's a huge wave. But you can still fit it on a clock because you just imagine how big your clock is going to be. I can put this clock on – a a the nucleus of an atom like say a gold atom and mm -hmm. i can count the number of shells on a gold atom mm -hmm. and use my clock wheels as shells and i can see my electrons orbiting and jumping shells in the clock i can do all sorts of things with this clock and you can i i assume you can put it on a galaxy or a sun too you can put it on a galaxy on a sun you can put it on a planet and understand so what like there is a there's a lot of strange phenomena that have occurred in the quantum world. Like they, you'll see electrons not only jump shells, they'll disappear from a shell completely mm. from the atom and come back. Mm. Right? You'll see that. Yep. So th there's a lot of things that physicists can't understand is when, when they see electrons disappear and then come back, they're like, whoa. And you'll see the strange quark which is a pretty heavy guy in the nucleus of an atom, disappear and come back, right? So there, those phenomena can be explained by the clock. Now, when you get into the idea of how UFOs work and you see Hutchison's very successful experiments, the first thing I realize is, because I understand how energy moves and how energy moves through, through materials, Electromagnetic energy goes right through steel, goes right through copper, like like it's not even there, right? Mm -hmm. So you're you're throwing all your energy away, and the question is, how can you make this 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 function more efficient using membrane materials that will make the energy in the nucleus very dense, and your your pulses of electromagnetic energy, for for example. If you wind a coil in a vortex, which like all my coils are vortex coils, then the energy is all getting away on you. How do you get it? How do you get that energy back so it doesn't go away? Right. I, I think a key to this tech, uh, if it becomes a tech for us in the white open world, is to find instead of doing what Hutchinson do, he just takes three random frequencies and then I'm assuming he's using random material. Mm. But you need a clock, you need a map like this, and then you need to know the exact um, elements to work with, which would uh, work, you could charge them or whatever fuse. And this is where I guess Tungsten comes in and 115, because you, you're probably aware of the Nazi bell, die Glocke. And what they used there is something that they've used a lot in alchemy, namely mercury or quicksilver, whatever you call it. Well, yeah, see, mercury 
is okay. So when you, go, when you get into the understanding that all everything on the periodic table is magnetic, mm. everything, and what I mean by that is it doesn't mean that everything is a magnet. It means no. that everything it has a property. It has a quality in terms of magnetic. Right. It has a. It's either paramagnetic, like aluminum is paramagnetic, mm -hmm. and then you go to. Um, Go to Mercury. I just want to see Mercury. Well, stop um, there. Stop right there. Just explain to us very quickly the four uh, aspects of magnetism. I don't think everybody... Okay, so the way magnetism works is imagine you have compasses, north and south compass. You have what are called atomic alignments to north-south. Right, right, right. And, and, and think of most materials as the north... Just throw a bunch of spaghetti, dried spaghetti, mm -hmm. or chopsticks or toothpicks on the table, and their their polarities are all over the place. Yeah. Their north-souths are scattered to the wind. Yeah. And and that's what your polarities look like in most materials, right? Right, right. So when you run current through what's called a ferromagnetic material like iron or nickel, they will, a lot of those polarities will remain in that north-south fashion, which allows that material to be a permanent magnet, but it can only attract a like material. Like so, so an or, or, or dispel the opposite. Right, or the opposite. Yeah. So, but in a, a diamagnetic metal like copper, though, if you take a good neodymium permanent ferromagnet because neodymium is stronger than iron it'll maintain more alignments than iron will if you run current you know north when you run current through a wire your magnetic field is 90 degrees to the direction of the flow of the current right mm -hmm. and your current is your amperage so your voltage is your difference and, and, and a difference is kind of like two people on a teeter-totter and the teeter-totter is neutral. You have no difference. You have no voltage. And as soon as the teeter-totter tilts, and depending on the angle, your voltage will increase, which is your potential for current to flow. And the, the magnetic field is 90 degrees to the direction of the current. Now, in a diamagnetic material like copper, it will mimic, like when you know when you put two magnets together, if you put two north or south sides together, they'll repel each other, yep. right? Yep. That's diamagnetism. So copper, when it's switched on, when there's current moving through a copper coil, it is a diamagnetic magnet because it's alive when, when the electricity is going through it. But the second I turn the electricity off, it's dead again. Now, if I take a, a neodymium magnet and move it really fast towards some copper, which I have here right in front of me, actually, mm -hmm. um, you'll feel a pull. You'll feel it. You'll feel the copper. Like I'm, I'm strobing a neodymium magnet towards the copper. I can feel it. I can Now, aluminum is paramagnetic, which means when it's electrified or, it's, or you induce a, a permanent magnet on it, it creates an attraction like a regular magnet. Mm -hmm. So you have diamagnetism opposes, paramagnetism becomes a regular attractive magnet, and then you have something called anti-ferromagnetism, which is incredibly rare in materials. We don't really need to go into that because it's so rare. So if I go to my... So what is the effect of it? That's the interesting stuff. Well, anti... They form opposing nodes. It's really interesting how an anti... 
ferro. So chromium is antiferromagnetic, for example, and chromium is in rubies, and chromium helps your body retain water, which is really interesting how it does that. So let's go to every single thing on the periodic table. Uranium is paramagnetic. Um, plutonium is paramagnetic, which means... Well, what's the fourth? You didn't say the fourth. Oh, so, so there's ferromagnetism, yeah. diamagnetism, which is opposing, mm -hmm. paramagnetism, and antiferromagnetic. That's four. Okay. Right? Okay. So the, the permanent magnets are all ferromagnets. Right. 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 So then you go to your uh, uh, mercury. So let's go to mercury. Yeah. Because mercury is found in the pyramids in That's right. Central America. That's right. And your mercury, I'm just trying to find it here, uh, is diamagnetic. So it will create a force field effect. And therefore, what's amazing about diamagnetism is you could actually create a force field and keep water away from you hmm. i can show you a video where these scientists put water in a plastic tube on a little foam pad on a on a little man-made pond mm -hmm. and if you push a magnet towards the water it the it will go sailing across the pond hmm. and the little water tube will go sailing across the pond why because water is hydrogen to hydrogen so, so when jesus walked in water he was high on quicksilver <laughs> <laughs> See, hydrogen is diamagnetic, so it will repel a magnetic field. Hence, because water is two parts hydrogen, right? H two, and and then one part oxygen. So, and the oxygen is paramagnetic, which is attractive. Hmm. But it's amazing that the water will push away from the presence of a magnetic field. So, there's a lot of reasons why the pyramid, but that pushing away of diamagnetism, and here's the other part that's hard to kind of grasp, is that all materials are either weaker or stronger in these different categories of magnetism, right? Like mm -hmm. neodymium is ferromagnetic, but it's much higher than iron. Like you can get a way stronger magnet made of neodymium than iron, right? So they're you know, we used to put iron, you know, magnet drivers in our speakers, and now people use neodymium because it gives you a tighter base. Like, a, it's a faster response. It's more of a powerful punch. So, so, so where does tungsten come in? Now, here's where it gets interesting. So you go to, um, this is on Wikipedia. So I go to um, uh, diamagnetic metals, and when you come to your list, on highest, we're at, okay, we're at diamagnetism now. Pyrolytic carbon is the highest. A superconductor is even way higher than that. Bismuth is quite high in diamagnetism. And why that interests me is because some of the Roswell materials contain bismuth. Hmm. And it's pretty high up on the list. Bismuth is the highest diamagnetic metal. Mercury is in the one, two, three, fourth position from the highest. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Of diamagnetism. And silver is right underneath that. Now, if you take a good silver bar in your hand and get a good neodymium magnet and push the neodymium magnet really fast back and forth on the silver, you're going to feel this. You're going you're gonna to say, oh, my God, silver is magnetic? Mm. It is because the magnet's moving. Now, if the magnet isn't moving, the silver won't care. Mm. 
Now, when the when the, when energy is moving in a coil, then it cares. Mm-hmm. It's really amazing how this works. That's I have a video of one of my cube double rotational coils on aluminum plates, and the aluminum vibrates and produces sound just like a magnet. It's incredible. Mm. There's no magnet there. That's impossible. So I've got aluminum acting as a speaker without any magnets. Mm. So now we go to, okay, this is diamagnetism. So now when I search paramagnetic metals, watch what happens. Magnetic metals. And I go to my chart, and you're going to see your tungsten. Okay, so your your tungsten is the highest metal in the paramagnetic family. So that means it's easier to turn it into a magnet with a magnetic field than it is, for example, aluminum. Aluminum is the, in the third position. Hmm. So the action I get on my plates with aluminum would triple with tungsten. Right. And Mm. the speed of sound in these metals varies. So the speed of sound in aluminum, I think, is over 11,000 miles an hour. And the speed of sound in tungsten is slower. Twelve. It's in the 767 miles. It's all the speed of sound in in um, tungsten. Oh, no, no, that's not in tungsten. Sorry. Solid metal speed of sound. Okay, that's where I have to look. So beryllium is actually, I think, is the fastest. Let me go to my tungsten. But but speed of sound is a good segue because we are running out of time and we have to discuss sound. So what we're going to do. Okay. Yeah. So let's uh, let's just uh, finish off the UFO discussion and then. Yeah. Let me know. Anyway, I've got to get back to my my seven year old. But let's do. uh, We'll do another part. Yeah. Let's do do another part next. Okay. We'll do a part three about the light body and and your stuff. Yeah. Because I wanted to talk about from here to Andromeda because you go into this stuff there too, and then I want to go through your videos, and then we end it with your website and what products you actually have made. Mm-hmm. that we can benefit from, okay? Okay, sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, then, uh, then see you in part three of this show. All right. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the pay link on our webpage. Thanks. Thanks.